The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets, policy, Hollywood. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You know, I think he's just totally damaged his reputation. And, you know, there will people will be, will have short memories, etc. And I'm sure he'll be able to raise capital. But I mean, he really shouldn't be. He should be in the big time penalty box as a result of this. This is incredibly embarrassing and regrettable incident in the history of Wall Street. I have an extra value meal of a guest for you this week. Best-selling author, Wall Street demystifier, scribe of all trades. William D. Cohan on everything from Elon Musk's desperation to get out of buying Twitter, Hollywood streaming winter, and his forthcoming book on the demise of GE. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. DM me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me from the coast of Massachusetts is best-selling author William D. Cohen. Uh, Bill Cohen. Yes, sir. Uh, He has authored several bestsellers, including House of Cards. There's one coming up that's going to drop later this fall on the fall of General Electric. Uh, you've written it for Vanity Fair, the New York Times. You've covered everything from Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Duke Lacrosse. As I call, as I call you, you are a scribe of all trades, and in a past life, you were an investment banker. How are you, sir? I'm I'm great, Robin, and thank you for having me in that kind introduction. Well, I've always been a fan of the byline, and you successfully, more than successfully, went from the investment banking and pitch book life to. One of being a prolific author. I mean, the things I just remember, the Vanity Fair bylines, once you start reading one of your essays, you can't stop. It could be about a, a you know, hedge fund family's fall. It could be about Goldman Sachs' culture, the Duke Lacrosse saga, which people might forget, uh, that nightmare out of North Carolina that was racially tinged that turned out to be so much of a hoax. I mean, you wade into these issues and I've always been a fan of your byline, and finally I have you on the show. So getting all of that organ music aside, sir, how did you end up at Puck News? Tell me about Puck. I listened to the podcast. I used to work with John Kelly at Bloomberg Business Week. He has assembled quite a stable of high-prestige bylines, you, Dylan Byers, Julia Yaffe. Tell me the backstory. Well, of course, I used to work with John at Vanity Fair. Uh, I was a Vanity Fair special correspondent. Uh, starting in 2008 and continuing until last year when I uh, joined John as a founding partner at Puck. And I, I think, you know, part of it was probably my tenure at Vanity Fair had run run its course, you know, after I was like perhaps the last surviving writer uh, from the, you know, the Graydon Carter days. Um uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, Radhika Jones was trying to put her own uh, imprint on it. So uh, more and more stuff that I would write would never get published. And so I also felt very strongly that 
journalists and writers are content providers. And, you know, not only should they receive a salary or a halfway decent salary, which of course is nothing like banking compensation, but more importantly, they should get equity. They should have equity in the enterprise so that if and when, you know, there's a payday for the equity holders, like there was with Politico and, and, and Axios and Business Insider, you know, among others, even BuzzFeed, uh, you know, had its version of a payday that the content providers, the journalists, the ones who were sort of making it really all happen on a daily basis should get equity, should have equity and should benefit from that. So I felt very strongly that that should be the case. And very few places were doing that. Very few places uh, shared that same vision that I had with John. And you know, John was one of them to his credit. And so it was actually a pretty easy decision, um, you know, given this opportunity. You know, I remember at, at uh, Bloomberg having this conversation with John Kelly in the Sky Lobby is, uh, you know, having also gone from a Wall Street career sort of out of college where we had a PL at a trading desk where you were a profit center immediately, it always stunk to be a cost center at various mastheads, really, whether you were an online publication or uh, you know, uh, masthead at the New York Times or at Smart Money or at Business Week or, you know, any of these Time Inc. publications, you were always kind of an interchangeable car- uh, part. You were like a side of beef. And the thought experiment I had with John, I think well before he decided to go off and help start Puck News, was what if you what if you set up shop outside the New York Times, you know, at the Port Atrocity <laughs> bus terminal and any senior byline or esteemed byline that took a massive buyout. You just warehoused them and created a publication. I don't know. You could call it not New York Times. Would that then drive revenue? Would that drive enterprise value? Would the talent, as you will, the creators, the content creators be more than just a kind of a commodity where you could replace them with younger, cheaper reporters? I mean, I started before I was a Wall Street investment banker. Uh, I had gone to Columbia Journalism School, and then I went to the Raleigh Times in Raleigh, North Carolina, as uh, the Wake County Schools reporter. Uh, Ironically, I'd never been to a public school in my life, but there I was covering public education because I had done my thesis at Columbia Journalism School on schools in Harlem. Uh, But I was always like flummoxed, you know, this was like instinctual with me, you know, why, as you said, we were being treated as cost centers. You know, I was getting paid $13,000 a year, you know, working my butt off, breaking stories that were bringing readers in and advertisers in. And, you know, the Daniels family uh, was, you know, getting rich as Croesus, sold the paper (laughs) for $300 million to McClatchy and uh, rode off into the sunset. And, you know, I was making $13,000 a year. And I couldn't figure out why we were just viewed as cost centers. And then you go to Wall Street and you're, you're viewed as revenue generators. Yeah. Same person, you know, not, not terribly different job. I mean, I wasn't writing, but my job was to get people to trust me. My job was to uh, be able to juggle more than one ball at a time. My job was to be a self-starter. My job was to, you know, execute deals. But at least on Wall Street, you know, the talent was paid extremely well and was viewed as as revenue generators. And and I couldn't figure out why journalism had the exact opposite view and why journalists stood for that. I couldn't 
for the life of me figure out. Now, obviously, it doesn't seem to happen quite that way in TV journalism, uh, right. such as it is. But for some reason, now, like when I write my books, obviously, I'm a principal. I'm an equity holder. In fact, I'm the one selling my equity in the project to a publisher who becomes right. my partner. As you well know, having uh, written a fabulous book about Miami, uh, uh, you know, so uh, to me, it but just Bill, seemed there's totally always natural. been someone. So here's the deal, and I don't want it to get inside baseball, but there's always someone fronting in advance, whether it's a salary for a masthead and a bonus arrangement, or back office, or benefits, or a book publisher. Well, that's saying, okay. I mean, if so, you're, there's someone you know, kind of taking on that risk, that initial advance risk. It's not like you're. You're, well, you're, you're okay, eating what people, you kill or if you, people if you who take Substack. on risks, you know, deserve to get rewarded. I mean, I could self-publish. So, you know, we now have the possibility of self-publishing. Uh, it's the right. kind of same calculus somebody would go through if they were deciding to, you know, do a direct listing or take themselves public through, a, a, you know, a stupid SPAC deal or something. I mean, you know, you can raise capital and get public you know, without being going to an underwriter on Wall Street, you can get published without going to the equivalent of a Wall Street underwriter, which is a publishing house, one of the big five and maybe big four, if the Simon and Schuster merger uh, ends up going through. I mean, so it's a question of you know, one thing that underwriters bring to the table, one thing publishers bring to the table is you know, massive distribution system, uh, marketing muscle, access to you know, institutional investors in the case of Wall Street firms or book buyers in the case of publishers. And, you know, it's an established system. You can buck that system if you want to. And some have incredibly successfully, like, you know, Google, which did a, you know, a direct or a, or a, an auction a listing. But as far and few between, you have to be very, very confident, you know, to, I mean, and highly confident is, uh, uh, Mike Milken might say. Highly confident. I love how you pulled out that uh, Highly pred confident. Predator's Ball reference, yeah. you and Beverly Hills. We're joined exactly. by Bill Cohen from Nantucket. He is, as I described him in the tease-up for this show, a multiple-time best-selling author, Wall Street Demystifier, Scribe of All Trades. The hot book that's going to drop uh, later this fall is Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, General Electric. Where do I even start with you? I know you've covered this whole Warner Brothers discovery uh, mess out of the gate quite well, and you're sourced really well at the company. What is it, Bill, about the former Time Warner that has vexed so many people? It's like this femme fatale that has destroyed companies like AOL. Uh, you know, Jeff Buke has made a lot of money. AT&T, I mean, I thought, yeah. here's the deal. AT&T took on all that debt to buy Time Warner, which had a magazine empire, which it had dumped. It had Obviously, HBO was the crown jewel with Game of Thrones and the Sopranos archive and everything else going on. I thought the wisdom of that deal was AT&T was going to get something sticky for its cell phone subscribers to differentiate it so that it's not a commodity versus T-Mobile or Verizon. And they quickly disgorged that. They took on way too much debt. There was a culture clash between, the, I guess, the suits in Texas and the, the talent wranglers in New York and in California. So why did that not work, and why did Discovery end up as the most effective suitor? Well, I mean, uh, it it didn't work, you know, primarily because they paid way too much for it. Uh, their stock was immobilized. 
They'd also made a bad acquisition with DirecTV. The mystery to me is why John Stanky, the architect of the DirecTV deal, as well as the Time Warner deal, is now the CEO of the company and has managed to survive as the CEO of AT&T, despite DirecTV now being spun off and Time Warner being merged into Discovery. You know, that's a mystery to me. Why they did the deal in the first place is a mystery to me. Uh, you know, AT&T, you know, and I did a lot of banking business for AT&T. And, you know, I was helped create what became AT&T Wireless. And, you know, they were really good at providing wireless, you know, relatively good. I mean, uh, you know, they weren't perfect or anything, but, you know, they created a nationwide uh, wireless business and ran it well and profitably. And, you know, then they all this suddenly decided they needed to be in the content business. Well, so was, did a banker convince them? I mean, who did that? It was the worst kept secret that Time Warner after its AOL misadventure, which took years to kind of unwind and they had to throw off the cable business and they had to uh, dispose of the magazine business unceremoniously, that it was for sale. And this guy, the CEO of Time Warner, Jeff Bukes, was looking for a golden parachute. So who <laughs> was the genius that sold it to these old kind of telecom guys? These were the former uh, Pack Bell, Southwestern Bell, which rebranded yeah, right. itself singular SBC. as AT&T. Yeah. SBC. So was it a banker who convinced them? Well, I mean, uh, this, you know, you need again, to pay for this. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure if, if a banker sort of surfaced the idea or uh, or not, or whether just like Stanky had this in his head uh, for a while and, and and convinced, you know, his bosses and the board. Um, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, really sure about that, but I'm sure uh, you know bankers got well paid, and you know don't forget it became a cause celeb because you know Trump tried to block the purchase, and then they sued. own CNN, they own CNN, they right? CNN, and they- which obviously Trump didn't like, and he had his uh, Justice Department sue uh, AT and T to block the merger, which. I bet, you know, of course, AT&T ended up winning. Uh, I bet they wish they had lost it uh, so that they could have not closed on the deal. It was a, you know, a windfall for, uh, it was probably the first real windfall for for Time Warner shareholders because, <laughs> you know, after the AOL deal, which was all stock, you know, it all went kaflooey. But I mean, right. Time Warner has always been a mongrel company. I mean, it was combined, you know, Time and Warner were combined together. It's always been sort of the you know in the land of misfit toys, and now it's uh, poor David Zaslov's uh, you know yoke. And and the problem is not that he can't run the assets or relate to the content providers, or uh, it's that he's got this incredible burden of fifty five billion dollars in debt that AT and T stuck him with is the price to doing the deal. And that's becoming quite burdensome for him at the moment. Burdensome, but also I I was shocked, as you know, just uh, right after the deal closed, just as the ink was dry, he comes in and snuffs out CNN Plus, which had taken seven, you know, what was it, a hundred million dollars plus of investment, yep. and they brought in talent and everything, and that was yes. kind of that was very quick. I mean, talk about a you know the editors used to say kill your angels, and then they came out and killed various projects in situ, in development, in vitro, at HBO Max. And suddenly they're being very discriminating about taking on new projects. There are layoffs going on there. The bean counting has never really worked with the HBO culture. Even within Time Warner and its strained days, 
they gave Plepler and others kind of a, a long leash to do things like The Sopranos or Game of Thrones which obviously or various paid off. other which, right. which which paid off but uh you know you know to what end it paid off in terms of getting AT&T to buy the company for a big price but you know now David Zaslav has promised you know 3 billion dollars in synergies and he promised 14 billion dollars in EBITDA in 2023 which has now been you know cut back to 12 EBITDA billion EBITDA being EBITDA being cash flow the money in and out the door ca- cash flow basically you know accounting cash yeah. flow uh and you know he's already had to cut back on that um you know he's got 55 billion in debt it's in triple b cliff land you know if it gets downgraded it, you know then you know there's all kinds of problems he's going to uh, have to deal with including a whole a whole new set of junk bond investors as opposed to par investors of of a higher credit quality debt so i mean he doesn't want that to happen so he's got a you know, he just cut 70 jobs yesterday from HBO. He's got a tiger by the tail kind of thing. And, you know, again, he's a multi-talented executive who got his start at GE. He He's the one who, uh, one of the ones who started CNBC and also MSNBC. Uh, so he's, you know, he's a very knowledgeable guy. He's a personable guy. He's, you know, helped me uh, with my GE book which was nice but now he's you know he's got to grapple with 55 billion dollars of debt and 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 12 billion of ebitda instead of 14 so put on your banker hat here i see that the company's enterprise value uh, of warner brothers discovery freshly merged is just 33 billion dollars you would think that hbo max alone would be worth north of that that if somebody were to Come in. And I'm sure investment bankers are hitting them with pitch books. Look, come in, sell off TNT, Turner Classic Music, sell off CNN. Some billionaire somewhere will buy it for $8 billion. Get to the core asset of HBO Max. I'm sure, am I not, that someone like a Comcast, Cable Town, or Apple, which has more than a you know $2 trillion of market value, or an Amazon, these ones that don't have to count as many beans, would easily come in and acquire an HBO Max for $30 billion. Well, I, I a couple of weeks ago I took a turn. I put my investment banking hat back on, and I wrote that uh, after talking to Tom Rogers, who's of course another great pioneer in the cable industry, uh, who also worked at GE after working for Tim Worth on the Hill. The idea that I put forth was that uh, Comcast merged NBC Universal with Warner Brothers Discovery to create uh, a company with more heft. Obviously, they'd have to figure out if they could own both CNN and NBC. I mean, I think they probably could, but you don't know quite with this Justice Department at the moment how they're going to attack these things. But both those companies, I mean, you need a way to spread out that $55 billion of debt over more EBITDA. Uh, you know the problem. So all the cash, all the cash flow coming into the cable business, but still for all the cord cutting, Comcast Xfinity has millions of subscribers. People paying it for Wi Fi. People are paying million. for the quadruple play, and the declining uh, linear TV business still throws off cash. I mean, cable companies of t- table stakes, you have to have CNN, you have to have TNT and TBS. So that helps service this gigantic consolidated debt load. That would be the idea. And because, you know, NBCU is, you know, it was pre-pandemic having about $9 billion of EBITDA. Now it's down to like 
six and a half and largely because it's uh, you know, it owns Universal theme parks, and that business has come back with with a vengeance, and so that's throwing off a lot of cash. But the cable, the the you know, the TV business and the cable, their cable channels, you know, aren't aren't doing quite as well. So they they need, you know, believe it or not, they need more heft too to compete with the list that you were talking about: Disney, Apple, Prime Video, uh, MGM over at Amazon, and they need to find ways to get bigger too, as of course does Paramount Global. And it's been rumored that Comcast is was interested in Paramount Global, but that's not gonna happen because, you know, then they you know, you can't own both CBS and NBC. We know that. And we know Brian Roberts was looking at Time Warner at the same time that David Zaslov was and whatever for reasons we don't know, backed away. Maybe he didn't want fifty five billion dollars of debt. Maybe that was too high a price. Well, Bill, of what about what about the login fatigue, subscription fatigue? You saw Netflix earlier this year with the bombshell news that it it saw. Yeah, I think there's too much been made of that. You know, there's still 220 million people who have subscriptions to Netflix. I mean, people like that content. They like the HBO right, but where, content. But the question is, where do you draw the line? HBO Max, Netflix. My kids won't let me unhook Disney Plus. Am I necessarily going to pay for the Amazon Prime Premium or Paramount? I mean, they're all trying to hit me. Hulu, I know, which still I know. has an unclear unclear ownership structure between Disney and Comcast. The but inertia is Disney. bizarre. Yeah. Do I want to spring for AMC Plus? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> but all of them are asking me to. And the question is, and I've posed this to other well, people. Well, AMC are we just- is a linear channel, so you can get that on your cable bundle if you're willing to watch some ads. Uh, no, I don't want to watch some ads. I want okay. to watch Breaking Bad 1 through 13 like continuously. And then if I do watch it on my Xfinity box, they make me, they stall me with all these ads. It's never perfect. And I do wonder, you bring up the cable bundle, if we are just reinventing the cable box on our streaming devices. Well, look, I mean, there's no question that people are going to draw the line. Like my kids are older, uh, Robin, so I don't have to worry about Disney Plus or whatever the hell they call it. We sort of go in and out depending on what shows somebody wants to watch. So I, you know, had to get some Apple TV because of severance, uh, you know, but, and that's where Richard Plepler has landed. So that's sort of an interesting place to, you know, make sure you're in touch with. But mostly it's like, I think, you know, between Netflix, Hulu, and HBO Max, you know, whatever it is the hell they're calling it or will call it. I mean, That's enough. That's basically enough. I mean, I personally can't watch the news anymore uh, because it's just too depressing. So and then if you, you know, if you have to watch Downton Abbey or The Crown or, you know, some other British show, you know, you can kind of rent it. You can always rent it without having a subscription. You know, you can rent a show here and there. and, And if you're just rationalizing it as being like, 10 times cheaper than it would be if you went to the movie theater to watch it, uh, you know, you can justify it without you know, having as somebody, to as a, put as a great expensive side, gas in, in your car as a great to go sell side anal- As a great sell-side analyst pointed, he said the biggest threat to movie theaters is not streaming. It's the average male age population and the growing prostate and the having to be proximate <laughs> to the bathroom. You can always pause. I mean, even taking little kids to the movie theaters and they get the the bladder buster drinks, you know, part in the imagery. You can't pause. They they they're like, Daddy, can you pause this so we can go to the bathroom? And I was like, Well, you've really gotten used to the Disney Plus way of life. 
Well, and and you know, don't discount inertia. Inertia is a very powerful force. Like it's hard to do something when you're used to doing next to nothing. Uh, you know, if you're used to sitting on your butt for two years because, you know, of COVID, I, I don't think streaming is going away. I mean, people can, you know, take it out on Netflix stock because, you know, their subscriptions right. declined, but uh, for one quarter or, or two quarters now, but they still have 220 million subscribers. I mean, try replicating that. I mean, you know, Disney had to spin away the other day to try to you know with all of their various streaming services that they've bundled together or pretend to bundle together now they suddenly have more subscribers than netflix but that's really apples to oranges i mean it's still a pretty amazing company you know all things considered and i suspect someone's gonna buy them because their valuation is down two-thirds Full disclosure, you're listening to Bill Cohen, best-selling author. He's a recidivist best-selling author. He just keeps best-selling them. Former Wall Street banker, scribe of all trades, please do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please recommend us to mom and dad and friends and family. We are, of course, on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great Commonwealth. You could catch us in D.C. and in Arlington on WERA. We are out west in Ventura on KPPQ, down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Bill Cohen, best-selling author, Wall Street demystifier, scribe of all trades. The upcoming book, which drops uh, around Thanksgiving time, is Power Failure. The November rise and 15th, fall of an before Thanksgiving. Before Thanksgiving. Uh, you can talk about it at the Thanksgiving table. Power Failure, the rise and fall of an American icon. The dramatic rise and unimaginable fall of America's most iconic corporation, General Electric. Uh, there's so much to get to before we get to that. I got to ask you about Elon Musk. You've covered this quite well, and you predicted it quite well. Look, you're allowed to be a manic depressive and uh, go out and buy things on a manic high and regret them in your depressive low. It's a whole other thing to be worth more than $200 billion and smack talk Twitter into acquiescence and go out and buy this company and regret it in a few days and try to back out of it after all the bankers and lawyers have signed on to this. And this is going to be up to a Delaware Chancery Court now. It really is one of the the more regrettable deals that has happened in Wall Street history. You know, it's so ironic because the way he handled it between January of this year when he first bought, started buying stock and then Elon Musk, Elon Musk until uh, he signed the merger agreement on April 25th was kind of like textbook. I mean, you know, he, he he stealthily acquired a bunch of stock. No one had any idea he was doing it. He uh, then announced, uh, you know, even though he screwed up his SEC filing, but basically he announced that he was uh, bought a nine percent ish stake in the company. Um, got offered a board seat. Thought about it. Turned it down. Then said he wanted to buy the company. Made an offer fifty four twenty dollars a share. To me, it was obvious that it was a fair deal and that the board of Twitter would have no choice but to accept it, even though everybody was going crazy about Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter. And he signs this merger agreement. And then the moment he buys it, to your point, 
you know, he has buyer's remorse and does everything possible to try to get out of it until, you know, whatever it was a month ago when he basically said, I want out. And so now he's in court because, you know, he agreed to a specific performance clause and he agreed to a very tight uh, merger agreement. You know, again, uh, having represent being represented by, you know, top notch lawyers or at least as Skadden Arps, who we would at least think of as top-notch lawyers. Uh, he was certainly well represented by Morgan Stanley. Uh, and, you know, I just, I think it's like an incredible embarrassment. It's a huge black mark on his reputation as a businessman, as a CEO, let alone as a deal doer. I mean, I don't think he can ever do deals again. And, you know, I don't know how necessarily, you know, people are going to take him seriously in raising capital at either Tesla or SpaceX or the Boring Company. Uh, you know, I think he's just totally damaged his reputation. And, you know, there will people will be, will have short memories, et cetera, and I'm sure he'll be able to raise capital. But, I mean, he really shouldn't be. He should be in the big-time penalty box as a result of this. This is incredibly embarrassing and regrettable incident uh, in the history of Wall Street. So there are people who would look at this to the uninitiated. You see that his net worth was last clocked around two hundred and fifty to two hundred and sixty billion dollars, which, to his credit, he did. Uh, you know, through all of this sweat equity and building Tesla into the colossus that it is, it's the most highly valued car maker in twenty twenty two. Even well, though he didn't build fraction. it, he, he bought into it. He bought yes. it. He bought it and then took it up to kind of escape right. velocity. That's right. That's so true. it's not like he has. $250 billion in a bank. I mean, how much how much money does he have liquid-wise that he could say, look, to get rid of this headache here, I can raise $8 billion to make Twitter go away? Is that all tied up in Twitter stock? I mean, he, he's been, you know, he sold Twitter stock in April. He sold some more last week. You know, he's said in April it was the last time he was going to sell stock. He said again the last week is the last time he's going to sell stock. He said back in like 2013 in a tweet that he was going to be the first money in and the last money out of Tesla, neither of which was true. He's got, to me, he's got zero credibility. Why he's raising this money and now, he said it's because in case, you know, the 18 or so people he coerced into becoming equity investors, you know, in his Twitter deal, you know, might disappear. Uh, and therefore, he needs to replace their equity with more of his own. Uh, I got news for you, Elon. They are, they are long gone. Uh, they did not sign up for the Michigas you've given them in Delaware. They signed up to do, well, and I don't even know why, but they did. They signed up for uh, a deal to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share for $44 billion. You know, they didn't sign up for a manic depressive quarter trillionaire, you know, who can't decide what he wants to do on a daily on a daily basis. So I think he's, again, I think he's just embarrassed himself. He's destroyed whatever credibility he had. Uh, and I think there are going to be long-term repercussions of this. And, you know, we, you know, we have no idea, obviously, how this is going to turn out in the Chancery Court. I suspect if he's not ordered to, to close the deal, now whether he ends up closing the deal is another thing, right. but he should be ordered by the court to close the deal because otherwise, what's the point of a merger agreement, you know, uh, or negotiated merger agreement? So he's going to be ordered to close the deal, but I think that will just be the starting point for him 
to negotiate a settlement with Twitter because let's be honest here, he doesn't want to buy it anymore because he's like, uh, you know, a pouting child. And the last thing Twitter wants is to be owned by him. So I realize that Twitter shareholders are going to be like, uh, you know, miffed. I want my 5420. I realize that. And, you know, that's kind of like too bad for them. It's that's like part of equity risk, <laughs> you know, uh, but there'll have to be some compensation coming from Musk to Twitter to sort of settle this outside of court. I've picked a number sort of out of thin air is that he's going he's gonna to have to pay them $5 billion. So I think, you know, why did he raise money last week after uh, by selling Tesla shares when he said he wouldn't? I think it's because he, you know, he knows he's going to have to pony up something like $5 billion to the Tesla. And, and, and what is the hereafter for Twitter with or without Elon Musk? It doesn't seem like there is much of a business model to it. It's been public for what, a decade and it's been dead money. And absent this, the st- if it breaks up the deal, the stock is going to revert back to, you know, correction levels. What? It, it's not like anybody's raring to buy them out. I think Twitter is better as a standalone company rather than owned by Elon Musk. Just, you know, operationally, reputationally, its future, you know, I, I you know, it makes about a billion dollars of EBITDA a year. It should make more. And they haven't really figured out how to make more yet. But, you know, I think over time, you know, hopefully they can figure it out. But I I just think regardless of whether they make more than a billion dollars or can't make more or can't figure it out, I still think the employees, the management, the customers, the users, uh, the advertisers, everybody except for the shareholders. Now, that's a big except. But except for the shareholders are going to be better off without Elon Musk owning them. The guy is way too volatile, way too mercurial, and he'll probably think he can be the CEO of the company, along with being the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX and the boring company. I mean, the guy, you know, he's only human. He doesn't have infinite bandwidth, even though he thinks he's like, you know, an ubermensch. So I say, Twitter, be done with this guy as soon as you get that verdict in Delaware, anointing you guys the victors, which you will get and then figure out a way to get rid of them. Uh, Bill, shift to Wall Street, if you will, and how vexingly difficult it's been for the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and Jamie Dimon at JPMorgan Chase to get these star bankers and traders to show back up at the office. I mean, you're talking about the abandoned canyons of Midtown Manhattan or whatever's left of the financial district. Uh, These people were productive. They worked on the SPAC boom during the pandemic. They said, hey, look, we made you money in spades over Zoom. Why are you going to force us back into the office now? Well, part of the problem is that 2021, when most bankers were not in the office, was the most profitable year in Wall Street history. Now, that was largely because of a gift from the Fed to Wall Street, a gift that now they're trying to take away and are in the process of taking away. As I wrote a piece earlier in the year, uh, you know, in the Times about how Wall Street is a, an apprenticeship business and people need to be back in the office. I mean, if you are serious, look, there are people on Wall Street who are serious about their careers and about wanting to rise up in the hierarchy on Wall Street uh, for whatever that gets them. And, you know, if those people are serious about their careers, then they have to be in the office learning from their peers, learning from their bosses, learning from their superiors, you know, soaking up the uh, 
gestalt of Wall Street by being in the office. There are people who work on Wall Street who are not particularly serious about their careers. They see it as a stopping point, either you know, a quick stopping point over to private equity or out of the business entirely or to go work right. at Google or to be a CFO of some company. And for them, you're not going to get them back in the office or only with great reluctance are you going to get them back in the office because their heart's not in it. They don't particularly care whether they uh, rise up in the ranks or not. They just want to get paid and, and do their work. And they'd much rather do their work, you know, in their PJs, uh, you know, in their apartment than schlepping into the but office. Is it, Bill, Bill, isn't that productive? If you're not getting on the Metro North train from New Canaan or whatever it is, <laughs> what do these guys do to get to Midtown Manhattan? You are incrementally getting two, two and a half hours of extra desk productivity from your kitchen table with the cereal bowl. Why Maybe. should they care? Maybe you're getting, who knows what you're doing in those with those extra two and a half hours. Maybe you're, you know, going to the gym. Maybe you're, you know, who knows what you're, you're you know, you may not be working. You probably shouldn't be working because it's enough. But isn't it being judged? The most mercenary PNL business is Wall Street. If you're not cutting it, then you get cut. You know, you're up or out. So except th this that, is, this except is there's a, a another element is, you know, I spent 17 years on Wall Street. There's another element. You know, you have to you can't suck up on Zoom, Robin. <laughs> you cannot suck up on Zoom very hard. And you need to be able to suck up to get ahead. Again, if you don't care about your Gosh, career. I, I do not I do not miss that life. I was only there for right. two years. <laughs> 17 years, buddy. Uh, and I have the scars to prove it. And all I can say is that there's a big element of success on Wall Street that's, you know, who's going to bat for you, who your rabbis are, who you get along with. Are you collegial? Or are you not? Are you a goal? I mean, you can't, none of those things can be determined, you know, through two and a half years of Zoom calls. You can do business, <laughs> you can get deals done, but you can't. You can't impress your colleagues. You can't impress. But Bill, your you also have to. You also have to shed a tear for the seventeen dollar chopped tossed salad in Midtown. I mean, these places have been failing left and right. You know, the expense account places, the seamless places. That entire. You have to step back and think about all of Manhattan. Uh, you you do yes. see these urban visionaries say that it will be repurposed like much of the financial district was, and if you could get the risers up and build bathtubs and additional plumbing and more residential tweaks to these buildings, that there is a potential great unlock in midtown Manhattan, but we're waiting to see if that happens. Well, look, I mean, New York came back after 9-11. People didn't think it would. People thought it was going to be a ghost town, and it came back. I mean... I think once we get through this phase, you know, we don't know how long this, quote, phase is going to be because the pandemic just seems to find new ways to continue on. I mean, I, you know, like five, incredibly, 500 people died yesterday still from the virus. It's astounding to me, but that's sort of what's continuing to happen. So, but I think, you know, if you're, if you're, you're you know, you're vaccinated and Look, uh, uh, David Solomon at Goldman wants people back at the office. Jamie Dimon wants people back at the office. Now, they try to insist. They can't really insist because they don't want an insurrection. But, you know, I think everybody knows that the, the people are sort of going to be marked about whether they're coming into the office and being a team player or they're resisting that. And, and again, I said I get back to the fact that there are some people 
who care a lot about their career, and they will be in that office. And there are some people who just don't care that much about it because they're on their way to someplace else, and they're just using this as a stepping stone. And so you're not going to get them in the office. And you know, until you know this pandemic finally either we have to learn to live with it or it runs its course, uh, you know, they're going to be the resistors. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, and DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Bill Cohen, in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, I want to dive into the upcoming book on General Electric, which was already teased by uh, the Financial Times on its shortlist for 2022 Business Book of the Year. Uh, The book, again, is Power Failure, the Rise and Fall of an American Icon. Of course, we're talking about General Electric. Time was, you know, under Jack Welch, that this had everything. You could buy diversification just in buying General Electric. It had the white goods business, washers, dryers, medical imaging equipment. Uh, anytime you wanted to go in and get a CT scan or PET scan, you obviously would see the, the General Electric insignia, uh, the defense business, aerospace. It was uber acquisitive and it was constantly pruning and reconsidering its portfolio. It had GE Financial, which turned out to be a uh, uh, kind of a fateful cookie jar. It had NBC Universal for a while, and then it all fell apart. I remember I was doing CNBC. I was uh, hosting Power Lunch or something the day they had to cut the dividend, which would have been unthinkable. Uh, but under Jack Welch and his successor, Jeff Imelt, this company completely fell apart. It was booted out of the Dow, and we might not even have the name General Electric for much longer. Well, it was once, uh, well, it was started in 1892. Uh, it almost went out of business uh, in the financial crisis of 1893. It had to buy its debt back at a discount, and it was only able to do that because J.P. Morgan, the man, uh, agreed for that restructuring to take place. It, it's always been an incredibly innovative company. It was a technology leader. I mean, I think we forget that, but I mean, the number of innovations that came out of GE are you know astounding it was under jack welch became uh the most valuable company in the world and the most respected company in the world and jack was of course the ceo of the uh century uh, the 20th century and you know he gave up finally he gave up his uh position as CEO. Oh, just before 9-11. Right. Four days before 9-11. And then Jeff Immelt comes in uh, and immediately has to deal with the fact that GE's made the engines that were on the jets that uh, went into the towers and uh, elsewhere, uh, you know, had to deal with the fact that it had reinsured, uh, had a reinsurance position in some of the towers, in a couple of the towers that fell. Uh, it lost some uh, employees that owned NBC, uh, U, of course, or NBC at that time, and which you know you know stopped uh, advertising uh, for a week. Uh, so you know basically the world changed dramatically, and so you had the incredible hype that that Jack Welch created around. GE, uh, you know, some of it justified, but not all of it, uh, meeting, frankly, the incredible hubris that Jeff Immelt had in running the company. 
And, you know, I think that Jeff, unfortunately, ignored many of the warnings, especially at GE Capital and the way GE Capital funded itself leading up to the financial crisis. Why, why was GE Capital such a black box? I'm just thinking credit, lending, equipment. Why was it such a... I don't think it really was a black box. Or a so black hole or whatever two it did years. become. It, what it was is the problem is that many of the Wall Street research analysts, or virtually all of them who covered GE, were industrial analysts. And they didn't understand that GE Capital, which was a obviously a financial company, uh, was generating half of GE's earnings. And by doing they what? Really by doing what it. exactly? I never understood that magic. I don't want to invoke Enron, but there was also kind of a faith-based, even among sell-side analysts, don't trust it. It's just good, whatever Enron does. And it was so heavily footnoted and asterisked that I, I, I always had the same impression with GE Capital. It was brutally hard to read a GE income statement or cash flow statement. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to read a complicated company's uh, income statement and the footnotes all around it don't help. I I, I agree with that, um, but I would say that the business itself at GE Capital, you know, maybe because I worked there for two years, I didn't find it that difficult to understand. It basically, it was in the arbitrage business, Robin. It uh, GE was a AAA rated company. It could borrow uh, very cheaply, like you know, just slightly more than what it cost the U.S. government to borrow, uh, and then it would lend it out. Uh, at a huge spread. And, you know, people used to complain that G Capital was the most expensive lender. You know what? G Capital was the smartest lender because they got paid for the risks that they were taking with that money. They not only got a large spread on the money, they also got warrants and took equity uh, in the companies that they financed. And so, um, they were just making a huge amount of money. They were in all sorts of different business lines. They basically uh, took Mike Milken's idea of a junk bond financing or lending to companies with less than stellar credit and and and, and put it on steroids. Right. Because they didn't have to sell that debt to the public. They could hold on to that debt that they provided, and they were just making you know huge amounts of money. It was an it was an incredible business. I didn't think it was that hard to understand. Now, what people didn't like uh, that that GE Capital allowed GE to do was if if Jack uh, had promised to uh, uh, you know investors on the street that they were gonna do. I'm just pulling this out of my uh, hat at the moment. You know, like two dollars a share in earnings. He would make sure that they did uh, $2 a share in earnings. And if he had to sell assets out of GE Capital, like a bunch of warrants or a loan or something, or a, real, or a building you know, that they owned, uh, they could do that. And so his, his mantra was, if I'm going to promise to Wall Street analysts and to the street and to shareholders, I'm doing $2 a share. And it's looking like come you know, a week or two before the end of the month that I'm only at $1.97 a share. Uh, you know, I'm going to sell, you know, three cents a share worth of GE Capital warrants or assets or whatever it is to make the number that I've promised the street. And, and uh, you know, I think that, you know, was something that Jack was like a religion to Jack. And, you know, people criticized him for that. You know, the first time I met with him uh, and you know, I interviewed him many times before he passed away in March of 2020, of 2020. Right. 
uh, was that, uh, you know, that I shouldn't fall for, you know, he was very determined on, uh, you know, what I wrote in my book to, to try to influence me, you know, that I shouldn't fall for this argument that somehow by, you know, selling assets at GE Capital to make the earnings for the quarter, that there was something wrong with that. Close us out, Bill Cohen. Uh, the Fed is in the throes right now of a tightening cycle, the likes that we haven't seen facing inflation that we haven't seen in 40 plus years. The market has rebounded from its lows. But I ask many guests this, is there an institutional memory from the last time the United States had capital I inflation in the early 80s when then Fed Chair Paul Volcker had to throw the economy into a deep recession to effectively spare it from the long-term ravages of inflation? Well, for people of a certain age, which includes my cohort and older, we remember uh, you know, very clearly, I think, obviously, probably the preponderance of uh, investors or, or, or people living today in the U.S. don't recall that. But, um, you know, we're very far from the level of inflation. Well, it depends on how you calculate it, I guess. But we're very far away from the reaction that Volcker's Fed took back then. In other words, there's a lot more room. Isn't that scary, though? They took rates into the mid-teens. Axiomatically, well, they had right. to to get real interest rates above the rate of inflation. So, But and if they're not... saying inflation is at a 40-year high, why are we still at Fed funds around 3%? Do you see what I'm saying? Explain that yeah, to me I, like a kid. You're Shouldn't not they be get... in the teens? Of course. We need to get the real rate of inflation, real rate, real interest rates above the rate of inflation. If the rate of inflation is 8.5%, real interest rates should be you know, at 10, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't that, shouldn't that what, worry more people? I mean, three, are we, what are we at? I don't even know. Where I think at. we're I mean, at we're three, I think we're there. at 3% and unemployment yeah. is really subdued at three and a half percent. But again, when you're talking about inflation at eight and a half and nine percent, and the Fed wants to be closer to 2%, there's a lot more kudzu to whack. Absolutely. But you're talking about an election year now and, you know, politics has become a bigger part of the Fed's behavior the, uh, than it uh, probably used to be. And, uh, you know, people saw what happened to Jimmy Carter when Paul Volcker uh, raised rates. He was a one-term president, and I'm sure Joe Biden doesn't want to be a one-term president. You know, I think, will the Fed have the spine to actually do what needs to be done? Best-selling author, Wall Street demystifier, scribe of all trades, Bill Cohen of Puck News. You are always welcome to come back on this show, sir. Oh, thank you, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfoldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And you can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. Would you like to carry Full Disclosure on your air? Message me and it's yours. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Next week.